morning. Sorry, some uh, schedule confusion. Um, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father, pray that um, amidst all of the mess of our world, you would help us to keep our eyes on you, for you are the sovereign, you are the one who is good, with no qualifications. No exceptions, no commas, buts, but you are good. And because you are good and you are sovereign, we can trust you. We know that your hand is at work in this world, in this universe, to bring about your good ends, to bless your people, and for Jesus Christ to be magnified. And we pray that he would be indeed magnified through us, your people. Would you make us small so that he can be made great? Would you make us small in our neighborhoods, would you make us small at work? Would you make us small among our families as we gather for Thanksgiving and Christmas and whatever events we might be called to this season, that much might be made of him? And Father, as we, we get busy and we get stressed and we get worked up and we get worked out, we pray that we would not lose sight. That we would not lose sight of you, the God who made all things and then rested from your works and calls us to enter into your rest. Make us a people of rest in the midst of the mess and make us a people of reliance on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 9. Uh, this morning's passage is long, but it is one sort of single unified story. Um, and unless we wanted to do a whole series on the flood, which we, we could do, maybe one day we will do, but it seemed best to kind of take this as one sermon, but we've kind of edited this down a bit to a more manageable length to accomplish our twin goals of highlighting the Word of God and keeping you awake as you hear it. So if you're following along in your Bible, know that I'm going to skip over some pieces as I read, and so maybe for some of you that means that you just want to listen, but I'll do my best to uh, alert you to the jumps in my reading. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, <clears throat> blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. Down to verse 22. Noah did all that God commanded him. Skip down to 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, down to 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, down to 23, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually verse 13 in the 601st year in the second month on the 27th day of the month the earth had dried out then God said to Noah go out from the ark you and your wife and your sons and your sons wives with you Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Down to verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Move to verse, uh, chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Down to verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
where we have come to uh, one of the most famous uh, stories in the Bible. And famous stories are difficult because we have a sense that we know them already. We know the ins and outs and the basic plot lines. We know how Noah built a boat and how he preached day and night to all his fellow citizens to save them from destruction. We know how Noah's neighbors made fun of him, mocked him, criticized him, but he stood strong in his faith. We know how Noah diligently gathered all the animals into the ark, accounting for each one to ensure there was a full rescue. We remember how he took exactly two of each animal. We recall how the entire planet was covered with water, and we think about how all those ferocious predators on board the boat were kept peaceful and tame while aboard, and we remember how Noah's boat came to rest on Mount Ararat. So we don't. Not a single thing I just said is actually in the Bible. Some of those things are possible. Some are reasonable conjectures. A few of them are just flat out incorrect. None of those things, though, is actually stated in the text. Then the text never says he built a boat. Never says he preached. Never says he was mocked. The Bible never says he gathered all the animals. Just that they went into the ark with him. He took them with him, but... How they got there, we don't know. And there were actually more than two of some of the animals. There were 14 of each clean animal, seven pairs. It never says the planet was covered with water. It says the earth or the land, Ha'eretz. That could be the whole planet, but it wasn't necessarily. The Bible never says things were peaceful or easy on the ark, does it? For all we know, rescuing a small critter from the jaws of our predator was sort of the daily chore of his sons. And rather than a a ship landing out on Mount Ararat, it came to rest on the mountains, plural, of Ararat. The peak that we call Mount Ararat got its name in the Middle Ages because it was where people generally thought the ship had come to rest. And they might have been right, but the Bible does not specify that exact peak. On the other hand, this is a tough passage for other reasons. Reasons only indirectly related to what the text says. For those Christians who are uh, committed to a young earth model of creation, the idea that the earth is less than 10,000 years old then the flood and the ark have become almost a symbol of that movement. So you can go to the Creation Museum down in Kentucky and find it's, that it's famous for this life-sized model of the ark, which was, and this is sadly not a joke, damaged by flooding a few years ago. Uh, it includes displays of all the dinosaurs Noah might have carried on board. Uh, For many people, Christians and non-Christians, the story of Noah, the ark, the flood, is more conditioned by those sorts of images than what the Bible actually says. And for those who are skeptical of the biblical story, there are also plenty of hasty generalizations about the similarities between this story and the stories of other ancient cultures 
other ancient Near Eastern cultures, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. And so there's this assumption that the biblical writers were just copying stories they heard from other cultures. And so many would suggest that we can write the whole thing off as a myth. But the popular versions of that argument, the versions you've most likely heard, often fail to wrestle deeply with the question of the origins of the story. And they nearly always fail to recognize the intentional ways that the story of Noah and his family seems to intentionally stay away from myth-making. Maybe even could be said to be critical of some of those other myths from the region. So here's my plea. Let's be people of God's word. Or if you're a skeptic, at least consider carefully what God's word actually says. Let's set aside our assumptions and our familiarity with the story or what we think of as our familiarity with the story. Let's set aside what we've been told by people with particular axes to grind and let's just hear from God. Because at the heart, this passage is a story of rescue, of salvation. And we'll see three things about this salvation, this rescue. First, why salvation is required. Second, where salvation rests. And third, in what salvation is rooted. Now, before we dig uh, too much, I want to highlight that first sentence of verse 9 in chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. And I want to pause there for just a second because I want you to remember, it's been a few weeks now, that all the major sections of the book of Genesis begin with this phrase, except for the first one, which begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the rest begin with, these are the generations of. So in chapter 2, 4, we get the generations of the heavens and the earth. In 5, 1, we get the generations of Adam. And now in 6, 9, we get the generations of Noah. Most of these sections of Genesis have just two or three major divisions, if they have major divisions at all, until we get to the generations of Terah, Isaac, and Jacob, which take up about 12 chapters each. They always have a lot of different major divisions, but those aren't part of our series. I'm telling you that so that when you read Genesis at home or when you study it in a small group, you have a sense for how that book is organized and and you can keep track of it and have the, the, the plot and how the story of God's rescue is unfolding in human history. Now, I know that's, that expression, the generations of, sounds a bit strange. And, and what these headings mean is that the author is saying something like, I've mentioned to you the creation of the heavens and earth, so now let me tell you what became of them. Or, I've mentioned this guy, Adam, now let me tell you what came of him. Or, here, I've mentioned this guy, Noah, like it did a verse ago, now let me tell you what became of him. No, it was mentioned in that very last section by way of contrast. Uh, he was 
contrasted with the increasing wickedness and perversion of the world. He wasn't the center of that story. He wasn't a major character in that story. So we're an afterthought to that story. But he comes in for a mention as a way of telegraphing where the story of Genesis was about to go. And, and here we are. So what became of this Noah guy who, like it says in verse 8, found favor in the eyes of the Lord? He found favor in the eyes of the Lord at a time when God was frustrated, brokenhearted over the evil that had accumulated in the world. What became of this Noah when God decided to, in his words, blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land? Would Noah be blotted out also? And that brings us to the first point. We know, of course, we know at least enough of the story to know Noah was not blotted out. He was rescued. It's not just that he was rescued, it's that his rescue was required. It was necessary. Salvation was required. I don't mean by that that anyone had to save Noah. I mean that if Noah was going to survive, the only way he could survive was by someone saving him. And the question is, why? Why was Noah in such a terrible situation that he needed to be rescued? Well, verse 11 has the basic answer and reminds us of some of what we read a couple weeks ago. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Violence does not necessarily mean physical acts, bruises, blood, and things like that. It refers to all the various injustices and oppressions that one person can bring on another person or one group can bring on another group. It is, like the text says three times, in those words, corruption at its highest level. Things were bad. Of course, you knew that. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. You know enough about that story to know that God didn't just flood the world for no reason. But that's actually a really important point that we don't want to skip over too quickly. Uh, like I alluded to, there's a lot of discussion out there about the myriad of flood stories from different cultures around the world and, and how similar or how different they are. And some people will tell you that, that all these flood stories is evidence that these cultures preserved a historical detail that clearly had worldwide impact and that they differ in the details because like one huge multi-century game of telephone, the details gradually got corrupted. Other people will tell you that this is evidence that the biblical story just borrowed from other myths of the ancient world. Neither of those explanations really holds, in my opinion. For one thing, besides the existence of the flood, most of those ancient stories of floods don't have very much in common. And some 
are just silly. Uh, one Australian version involves a conflict, a, a war between the lizards and the platypuses. That's real. You can look that up. Um, but there are flood stories that are closer to this one, stories with many similarities, stories that come from the same general region and, and maybe from about the same time period. And so are they rip-offs, or did, did Genesis rip off those, and which came first? It would be impossible to, to, to sort out which written story came first. But the differences with the story in Genesis 6-9 through are really remarkable. Because in the closest similar, the most similar story, the gods, plural, get annoyed by the noise generated by the growing population of humans. That's, that's in the most similar stories we've seen. Now, when this was being written down, the world population was maybe, by some estimates, 20 million. And, and when it supposedly took place, which would have been before it was written down, there are population estimates of as little as one million people on the face of the earth. And the whole earth. That was considered to be noisy, overcrowding by these gods. We have numerous individual cities that have larger populations than the entire world did back then. But by contrast, the God of the Bible had commanded people to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. In fact, it's a command that gets repeated to Noah at the end of this passage. He was not worried about overcrowding because we are a reflection of him. We are made in his image. Everywhere we go, we say to the universe, this belongs to God. This belongs to Yahweh. Did we need to be rescued because some gods were threatened by our population boom or were annoyed by our noisemaking? No. The Bible says we needed to be rescued because a single God who is wise and self-controlled and not given to making like fickle judgments about noise levels who made us in his image to be in relationship with him, was grieving all the ways that human beings had completely filled his earth with moral corruption. And in his justice, he had to deal with it. Because Noah was part of this entirely corrupt world that was going to be destroyed by a just God, he had to be rescued out of that destruction. That's different than those other flood stories also. For example, in one of those stories, one of the gods who knows of the plan to wipe out people tips off the protagonist gives him a warning so that he can find a way to escape. Apparently, the gods were not all on the same page. And this god wanted his worshiper to be saved. But in the Bible, God is resolute and determined. He consults with no one, and no one defies him. 
I think many of us, though, we think of God the way the ancient Babylonians did, the way the ancient Sumerians did, the way they thought about their gods. We think he's fickle. We think that his attitude toward us could just change on a dime, could just change at any moment. We think he's easily offended. We think he's easily annoyed by us. We think he could erupt in anger or frustration at any moment for some small thing we did to displease him. But that's not the case. The Bible describes God as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. In fact, the story from Genesis 1 to Genesis 6 is of a God who lovingly and powerfully created a very good world, hand-fashioned a perfect environment for human beings, blessed us, and had fellowship with us. A God who provided for our every need, but we were not satisfied with his kindness. Instead of focusing our attention on how much he had done for us, we focused on the one thing he had not given us. And we went against him and we lived for our own pleasure. And our treason brought death into this world. And the first of those deaths was the murder of one brother against another. And then, over a long period of time, corruption continues to increase, culminating, it seems, in an attempt to live forever apart from God by turning to other spiritual beings who were not God's equal. And so finally, after centuries of this, God's heart is broken to the point that he regrets his creation of human beings and resolves to bring his justice. The Bible repeatedly, repeatedly describes God as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But then it always adds this clause, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Still, in his patience and in his forgiving nature, his slowness to anger that are emphasized, those things are the things that are emphasized much more in Scripture. We need a rescue, but we don't need a rescue from offending weak and impotent gods whose rules we don't understand or even know. No one needs to be rescued from having too large a family or being a little too loud or for your words coming out a little bit wrong or for performing that ritual slightly incorrectly. We need a rescue because of a moral crisis. And it's a moral crisis that we are well aware of, or at least we should be, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 1, for the wrath of God, his anger, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. This is a God who loves us, who wants us to know him, and who has made himself known. God's word 
and our eyes testify to this fact that oppression and injustice continue to run rampant on the earth. And as much as we'd love to take to the streets and demand justice or, or to point our fingers at the ones who bring the injustice, we cannot escape the fact that we are full participants in that oppression. The depths of violence in this world are so great that any realistic thought about fighting that system and cleaning it up will lead you, if you're in any way honest, to like a paralyzing, head-spinning trap. It seems like the only way to avoid evil is to leave this world. And that means we very much need a rescue. Salvation is required. Why? Because the earth has become morally corrupt. So if salvation was necessary, how did Noah get in on it? Our first inclination might be to ask what made, different from, what made Noah different from this earth that was filled with violence. And that's a good starting point. And it will start to paint the picture. Because if we look at uh, verse 9 of chapter 6, again, but this time we look at the last two sentences, we read this. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That puts him in some rare company. There are three terms, there are three phrases used to describe Noah. The first is righteous. That's a common word in the Old Testament, a common word in the Bible, 200 plus times. It was something that was expected of God's people. God's people were supposed to be righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, the basic idea is to be just. It means to be fair. It can mean innocent in a legal sense. It means to carry out your affairs in an upright way, following the norms of God's law. It means being moral. It's a high standard, but it was expected. The text doesn't end there. It says Noah was blameless in his generation. We might not have a good word to translate blameless. In, in Hebrew, it's a word that's most commonly used with sacrifices. The sacrifices the Israelites would offer to God, the animals offered in sacrifice had to be blameless, or we usually translate it unblemished. That means they had to be whole. They had to be intact, not lacking in any way. For those sacrifices the Israelites were required to offer, they couldn't just offer to God any such animal. If it was defigured in some way because of a birth defect or an injury, it had to be a good animal. Not one that you would be happy to get out of your flock. If you give a gift to someone, something that's in your possession that you don't really want, is that generous? Not really. I mean, it, it might be thoughtful, that instead of tossing it in the garbage, you thought, you know who would really appreciate this? That's thoughtful. It's not generous. It's thoughtful. But God wanted generous people, people who honored him for who he was. When it comes to people, this seems to be a, a higher standard than righteousness. 
It's only used about 90 times in the Old Testament. And just over 20 of those speak of people. You can add another 15 or 20 if you add another closely related word, but it's used much less than righteous. And it's usually an, like an aspiration, a hope, a wish. I want to be blameless. Help me to be blameless, God. In a couple places, God commands his people to be blameless, but it doesn't seem like they generally are. Who is blameless in Scripture? It's a short list. And it goes like this. Job, maybe David, and Noah. That's it. That's the list. And then we have this third phrase where Noah walked with God. Two. That's it. Two people are described as having walked with God. Noah and Enoch. Enoch from chapter 5, from that long genealogy of so-and-so lived and had a son and had other kids and died. And we read over and over and over, and he died. And he died. But there was one exception. One man who didn't fit the mold. So back in uh, chapter 5, we read, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all of the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. One man did not taste death, it seems, or at least he didn't taste death the way any of his ancestors or descendants experienced it. One man stood out. He walked with God. Noah walks with God. And so we're primed to be hopeful that maybe some way, somehow, he could escape death also. Now, the differences between righteous and blameless and walk with God are are probably levels of intensity or, or consistency in devotion to God. And trying to pin them down into much more precision than that is difficult because they all imply an exceptionally high moral standard. Not just desires and intentions, but in actual conduct. The head and the heart and the hands all working together, producing the goodness that reflects God's character. For simplicity, though, we'll just say Noah was righteous, particularly righteous. It's the one thing that stands out about Noah, because consider what we know about him. In this whole passage, Noah never speaks. So we only have what the narrator tells us. He has three sons before any of this takes place. In uh, Chapter 8, verse 6, he opens a window, begins releasing birds to determine if it was safe to go out. Verse 13 of that chapter, he takes the top off the ark to see if the, for, for himself if the ground is dry. Verse 18, he and his family leave the ark. Verse 20, he offers a sacrifice. That's mostly it, except one other thing. 
In chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What, what, what was the this that Noah did? He made the ark to God's requirements. He brought the animals into it, and he kept them alive. And that is the most important, specific thing we know about Noah's actions because it demonstrates his righteousness, his blamelessness, his walking with God. God gave him a command, and he obeyed it. His head, his heart, his hands worked together to honor God in this one thing. He was righteous. Many years later, a prophet named Ezekiel would speak for God to the people of Israel, and he warns the Israelites to turn away from worshiping idols, false gods who can't save. But even as he does so, God indicates that the stubborn sinfulness of the nation of Israel was so great that disaster was inevitable. And twice in Ezekiel 14, God tells Ezekiel, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. The idea is this, that when God is ready to judge, you won't get saved because you are near someone else who is righteous. Even if they're super righteous, even if they're a Noah level of righteous, when God is ready to judge, the only salvation available is a salvation that rests in your own declaration of righteousness. If God deems you righteous, then salvation is available to you, but no one else. And that would mean, it seems, that Noah's family, though not the focus of the story, also could be described as righteous. But that's the idea. Salvation rests in righteousness. Eight people were saved. Eight people were rescued. Their rescue rested in righteousness. So now if the world is a catastrophic mess of injustice that we can see with our own eyes, and if God is not a God of injustice but a God of justice, even though he's patient and he's kind and he's slow to anger, we know he must judge the world. And if he must judge the world, you need to ask yourself, am I righteous? I have to ask myself that question. We all need to ask ourselves that question because if the answer is no, then we are in deep trouble. And if the answer is, I'm not sure, well, that's a very scary thing to not be sure about. What do you do with that? Do you try not to think about it? Doesn't seem like a great plan. Usually avoiding my problems causes them to get worse, not better. I haven't found an exception yet, but I'll let you know if I do. But who is righteous? Who can say that? We feel a certain way about that word, don't we? We might, we might dare to call someone else righteous, but we 
tend to feel very uncomfortable about calling ourselves righteous, don't we? And we get suspicious of anyone who calls themselves righteous. Maybe we remember the words of Jesus in Luke 18. You remember that parable? We read there, he says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So if salvation is necessary and salvation rests on righteousness, but then what are we to do? Because who are we to call ourselves righteous? But if we can't call ourselves righteous, what hope do we have? That's the other piece of the puzzle. Salvation rests in righteousness, but salvation is rooted in God. If we look at this passage carefully, despite all the toys that might show up in the Lego aisle or the Playmobil aisle or whatever else, this, this passage is not about Noah. He's not the main character. God is. God warns Noah. Noah is silent. God tells Noah what to do, and Noah is simply said to have obeyed. No details about what that looked like. No details about constructing the ark or gathering the animals. He is, at best, a silent partner in this deal. God even shuts him and his family into the ark. By the way, that's another contrast to these some of these other flood stories that seem similar, which make the human figure something of the hero of the story. One of the closest parallels, probably the closest parallel, that man becomes immortal and joins the gods because of his heroic deeds. Not Noah. Even though Noah walked with God, he is going to die eventually, unlike Enoch. And unless we get too high opinion of Noah, the next passage for next week makes Noah look very much not like a hero. God is the hero of this passage. He is the protagonist. He is the main character. He is the mover. He is the one we are drawn toward in this passage. He is the one who is acting. Noah finds salvation. And his salvation rests in righteousness, but it is God who does the saving, not Noah. God tells him what will happen, what to do, presumably helps Noah to bring it about, keeps his word, and brings an end to the disaster before Noah runs out of provisions aboard this makeshift boat. God is totally in control. Without going into all the, the details 
for so many reasons, the center of this passage is chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. God doesn't remember in the sense of forgetting. That's not what the Hebrew idea means. When Scripture speaks of God remembering, it means he began to bring relief from the troubling circumstances he allowed so that he can do good for his people. Yes, he saved Noah. But these are still pretty trying circumstances. He was stuck floating on the waters for a very long time. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. God didn't owe Noah any blessing. But God's character is to bless his people. So when God remembered Noah, he set out to bless him and to remove the pain of his circumstances. What did Noah know? Maybe, maybe Noah thought that when the food ran out, he would start killing the clean animals to eat those and until he got down to a pair. Maybe he figured he could die on the ark, but the animals would carry on. Certainly God doesn't need all eight of these people. He needs two of most of the animals. He can do with two humans. He can make do. He got to continue living through the flood, and life has its own value. But God remembered Noah. God was going to preserve Noah's life on the other side of the flood. And in chapter 9, we read that God does, in fact, bless Noah. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah gets the same blessing as Adam. In the flood, it was like the entire land was returned to the watery state that it was in before God brought order to his creation, all the way back in Genesis 1. And as God once again separates the water from the dry land, a new man, a new Adam comes forth. And if, if the Here's where it gets cool. If, if the mountains of Ararat are in the general vicinity of eastern Turkey or Armenia, where it does seem most likely, then Noah stepped out of that ark in the area that is also most likely the location of the Garden of Eden. And what was the Garden of Eden? We talked about that a few weeks ago, but it was this place where God dwelt with his people. And later in Israel's history, the, the tabernacle where they worshipped, they, they would be decorating it with all these symbols that were reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. And although God would not dwell with his people in the tabernacle or later the temple the same way he did in the Garden of Eden, it was at least a place where he would draw near to them and where he would meet with them. And at the heart of the tabernacle, at the heart of the temple, was a box, an ark, that contained what? God's perfect law, his words. And at the heart of the garden was the tree of life. That sounds different, right? But, it, but is it? Because in Deuteronomy 32, a passage that was read last week, God tells his people 
through Moses? Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Many years later, John chapter 6, Jesus would say that his words are life. And the Apostle John in his first letter, the first verse, would call Jesus himself the word of life. Paul uses the same expression in his letter to the Philippians to describe Jesus, or maybe Jesus' message. It's hard to separate them because Jesus himself is the message. And so at the heart of the garden is life. At the heart of the tabernacle and later the temple was life contained in the ark. And coming to rest in the region that's at least suggestive of the region of the Garden of Eden is an ark full of life. The ark was a place of God's presence coming near to his people, a, a place of life, a place of salvation. It wasn't merely the fact that Noah and his family floated above the deadly flood that was salvation. It was the fact that Noah and his family were brought into the very presence of God where there is life. God's the central character. God is the Savior. God is the one who gives life, and he is the one who preserves life. The end of this passage in chapter 9, we're introduced to the idea of covenant, and, and time forbids that we get into it too much detail, but this becomes a huge theme throughout the rest of the Bible. And God says he establishes his covenant with Noah and his family. Was that Noah's idea? Did Noah agree to it? This covenant, this holy commitment that God enters into with Noah and, and blesses him through, it's entirely one-sided, isn't it? It's not conditional on any particular action from Noah. It's grace. Noah has not earned this deal. He has not earned this blessing. He's not bargained for it. He hasn't even spoken yet. It's just given. Salvation is rooted in God. How can we square that idea, though, that salvation rests in righteousness with the idea that it's rooted in God? The author of Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Why does the author call it faith? Because biblical faith, Christian faith, requires two things. It requires believing that what God has said is true. He was going to destroy the entire earth with a flood. And it requires trusting that God's commands are good. Believe God, trust God. Intellectual, relational. Both pieces. But that passage in Hebrews 11 actually continues, and it's important. It says, by faith, 
Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. An heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. What does he mean? He's speaking about Abraham, a a descendant of Noah, who would place his faith in God, a God, and God would credit that faith to Abraham as if it were righteousness itself. Abraham then becomes a model of righteousness. If you want to know what righteousness looks like, you look to Abraham. And what makes Abraham righteous? He believes God. And so Abraham becomes a model for faith. If you want to know what faith looks like, look to Abraham. And there's a sense in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, that righteousness looks a lot like someone who generally keeps God's laws. They aren't perfect, but they're going at it. But it's not the whole picture. Because if you, if you look in an absolute sense, if you take a person's life and thoughts and words and compare them against the standard, which is God himself, we all come up short. Psalm 14, Psalm 53 are nearly identical. And they also sound very similar to Genesis 6. Here's what they say. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul quotes that passage in Romans 3 and translates the Hebrew as righteous. There, none is righteous. No, not one. In an absolute sense, we all fall short. But if we all fall short, how can Noah be called righteous? How does he find God's salvation? Because in God's graciousness and in God's goodness, he credits faith as righteousness as it says about Abraham in Genesis 15. And he, Abraham, believed God, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. It was credited to him. He wasn't holy, objectively, standing in the presence of God, face-to-face, righteous. But God counts that trust in him that belief in him, that faith in him as righteousness. If you go back to Genesis 6-8, the last verse of the passage two weeks ago, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Was that before or after the ark? It was before the ark. Noah was in relationship with God before he did any of these things. Noah did great works out of his faith. But his faith came first. And that faith was counted to him as righteousness. And through that faith, he found salvation. Salvation rests in righteousness, and salvation is rooted in God. God acts to save, and God's presence is life. And in his goodness, God credits faith as the righteousness necessary for salvation. And that might lead us with a question. It should at least, because the entire 
Old Testament screams a question. How can God, who is so just that he must destroy the world for all its corruption, still spare a man like Noah who was part of that corruption? How can God credit righteousness to a man who has not earned it? Isn't that by very definition unjust? It would not be unjust if Noah's imperfections, his sins, however small in comparison to his generation, were punished. But what if they could be punished in a way that was separated from him? What could that even be? And it's not entirely clear in the Old Testament. It's hinted at many times, but what seems consistent is that righteousness of the Old Testament came by faith. They had a belief that God was just, and the belief that God was merciful, and they trusted that God could provide a way of salvation. And in time, we might say a vehicle of salvation became known. And God himself was that vehicle. His presence was that vehicle, and he took on flesh and blood, the blood of Adam, of Noah, of you and me, and he dwelt among us. Does that Sound familiar? God invaded the earth. He died on the cross, death for death, life for life, a way for the sin of one person to be punished by the death of another man. And Jesus, there is a true and better ark, a chest of salvation from the turbulent storms of sin. And in his words in his very message in him was and is life eternal life salvation is rooted in god the god who took on flesh in the person of jesus and became our ark our lifeboat of salvation and to all who take him at his word that a salvation is necessary and rely on him alone to provide it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, are amazed by your gracious provision of salvation. Would you lead us to believe and credit our faith to us as righteousness? Would any who are apart from you, separated from your promises and, and under the condemnation of this world, flee to the ark of salvation that is in Jesus Christ? And may we be faithful to show this world that you have made a way in the midst of what is obviously something gone very wrong. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.